The Old Testament reading this morning is from the prophet Isaiah. Listen to me, you that pursue righteousness, you that seek the Lord. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and will make her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Listen to me, my people, and give heed to me, my nation, for a teaching will go out from me and my justice for a light to the peoples. I will bring near my deliverance swiftly. My salvation has gone out and my arms will rule the peoples. The coastlands wait for me and for my arm they hope. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and those who live on it will die like gnats. But my salvation will be forever, and my deliverance will never be ended. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel reading is from Luke. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and praying night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Good morning and Happy New Year. 
It is good to see you. Um, and as Chris was talking about in his introduction, there is something about this time of year where people are sharing all of their favorite lists, lists of books, lists of favorite movies, lists of all the things we survived. And it's one of those times where we look back over the year and then we all kind of go, oh, this is why I'm so tired. It's like, oh, this actually makes sense because a lot has gone on over the years. So we do these big years in review. So I've been doing a little bit of that over this past week, but then as I was looking at these passages, I was thinking, you know, there's something about the way that we pair Old Testament and New Testament together that gives us a chance to go God's story in review, how these things are meant to be read together. So it's not necessarily a year in review. It, it casts our vision to a much larger timeline. So now we can kind of go, what is God's story in review? And there's something that we get to do here at, on this side of Christmas that goes, what is it that we are looking at? Where are we in the story? Where are we going in the story? So today I actually want to start with the Old Testament passage, and then we're going to make our way into Luke and focus on Luke and the people, the characters who are present in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but first, just to look at Isaiah 51, and this is actually a common theme in Isaiah, especially this cluster of chapters. Isaiah presents these themes um, often, a little bit on repeat. So we are supposed to recognize the theme. And we're not going to forget our good friend Habakkuk, even though he belonged to Advent. He's part of this story. And we sat with Habakkuk quite a bit and we waited and we waited. And Isaiah is going to pick up on some of those themes and say, you're going to need to wait, but you know what restoration looks like? And then Isaiah cast this vision for true restoration when God restores his people on the other side of judgment. This is what it is. The images are quite powerful. So look at verse 3. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all of her waste places. And then we're going to go into two phrases that are set in parallel. So we have... He will, he will make her wilderness like Eden. So we have a comparison here. And then the next phrase is another comparison, which is very similar. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. So we have wilderness and desert in contrast to Eden and the garden of the Lord. So two parallel ideas. And when we look at this, I have found it's really important to kind of uh, clarify some images we're supposed to have in our head because I find a lot of people in this area um, or in, if we go further north in North America, when we say wilderness, they tend to think like bush, dense bush that you hike through. Maybe there's a path, maybe not, but lots of green ring. You're kind of pushing your way through, which is the wrong image. Wilderness in biblical speak is desert, is brown and rocky. You have to think not very much vegetation, very little water, often no people, maybe some Bedouin. Um, it's dry. Some people actually, when they go and see the wilderness that is actually in Israel, they think, oh, this is like a moonscape, like that type of texture to the hills, but it's all rocky 
and dry. So you have to think that's what Isaiah is saying. That kind of texture of landscape is going to be turned into not just garden, but he evokes Genesis 2. Garden of Eden. Garden. Like that is complete restoration. That's like getting all the way back to the way God purposefully designed it from the beginning that kind. So Isaiah is focusing our attention on the power that God has to take something that is dry and moonscape and barren and make it lush and beautiful. And even just garden imagery at the time of Isaiah would have evoked um, kingly palatial places because it was the kings of nations who had huge, massive planned gardens. And the king would sit in the garden and reign. It was like the garden kind of mimicked his kingdom. And so Isaiah is going, God is the one who's, when he brings restoration, will turn wilderness into his own kingly garden, evoking God's presence with his people. Ah. That's kind of beautiful, right? That's what we've been waiting for and pushing down in this context of waiting. And Isaiah goes on and he talks about how there's going to be a teaching that will go out from me and my justice will be a light to all the peoples. So in a way, like this is where I go, remember Habakkuk? Remember how we left Habakkuk, because we left him recognizing that his own context, the hills of Judea in threat of Babylon coming, was like a wilderness type terrain. We left him recognizing that his context was dry and hard and difficult, but his God could give him the feet like an ibex that can help him flourish in that kind of context. Right? And Isaiah is going, that might be our present context, but we can hope for something that is so much more. We can hope for this pure restoration. In that kind of expectation and waiting, now we start to realize this is more than a year in review. Now we're dealing with lifetimes of people and people who have waited. So we get into Luke, and so we have to do a little background on Luke too, even though we've also been kind of hanging out with Luke for a couple weeks. There's something really amazing and really beautiful about Luke, because Luke, he almost like folds his narrative like an accordion, and he slices in all of these promises God has been making to his people. So as you read his narrative and you kind of bend over the page, you go, oh, wait, this is reflecting this promise that God made ages, hundreds of years ago. And look, it's kind of coming to fruition. So you could say, using another image, it's almost like there's a play going on. And since we have a stage, we'll just say, it's almost like the real life play is happening on the stage, but projected behind is this moving, flickering image of a time long ago when God was promising things. And if you as the audience read Luke correctly, you start to see how these are connected back and forth. You start to go, oh, this is more exciting than just the singular story on the stage. 
Luke is, um, is also interesting and unique among the gospel writers in that he likes to pair people together. So even though we're in Luke chapter two, we've already seen lots of pairings. So for example, we have Zechariah and Elizabeth. They show up first. Of course, we're gonna have Mary and Joseph, uh, but then we're also going to have like, Zechariah has an angel that appears to him and then an angel appears to Mary. And then Mary sings a song of salvation, then Zechariah sings a song of salvation. And then of course we get this pairing that has a, a natural element of waiting involved because we have an older woman who waits through the pregnancy of a miraculous child in Elizabeth. And then we have a very young woman wading through the miraculous growth and deliverance of another miraculous child in Jesus. So these pairings are really important and we have to keep that in mind. And we're gonna kind of come back to this and say, what do we learn when we read these pairings together? Because you can't leave out half the element to focus on your most favorite half. You have to look at them both together because Luke wants you looking at them both together. Now, by the time we get to this story, we, the readers, already know and have celebrated in real time the birth of Jesus, this coming of this miraculous child in this little village, a very small town in Bethlehem with shepherds showing up and a household of people being there looking at and recognizing the birth. But in the Luke narrative, not everyone knows what we know. People are still waiting and there are people who are still going, what does restoration, when is the time of restoration coming? And then Luke is going to get us to Jerusalem. So now we have an interesting pairing as well because now we move from this small little village of Bethlehem that doesn't really have its own water source. It's not walled in at this time. Um, there's people like actively living together as a community. They're about five miles roughly from Jerusalem. So it's something you can walk in a day. So when we see Mary and Joseph going to Jerusalem, left in the morning, came back that night. So Bethlehem is a small town that lives in the shadow of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is a whole different beast. Jerusalem is urban. Jerusalem was an official Roman polis, so an officially established city. It was a walled city at this time, and it was filled with majestic, awe-inspiring buildings. It was the heart of politics and religion. It was the heart of David's kingdom and temple residing in Jerusalem. Therefore, the identity of the Jewish people from all over the place, Jerusalem is this focal point of nationality, of who, who they are as God's people and God's presence among them. So when we start our story in Luke, we have a young couple walking five miles, arriving in Jerusalem, and we're told, we're like given a little picture of them. So at the beginning of our passage in verse 21, we have first, well, actually the next couple of verses are all telling us how Mary and Joseph are 
fully embodying all of God's teachings for his people. They're following all the right Jewish customs. So they wait eight days and then they circumcise and they name their son Jesus. And then they're going to wait until the time of purification, which is, if we read the Levitical law, 40 days. So for a woman who has given birth to her first son, there's this built-in time of healing for her body to just kind of heal after this big event. 40 days later, you go to the temple and you offer a sacrifice because you're redeeming your firstborn son, like casting a distant memory look to Egypt where the firstborn child of the Israelites was saved, right? So there was this built-in like remembering. So Mary and Joseph go, and then when Luke tells us that they offered two young pigeons, it's another one of these clues. It really should be a small lamb, a young lamb. But the Levitical law says, if you're too poor and you can't afford a lamb, offer two pigeons instead, something a lot more economical. So Mary and Joseph in offering two pigeons, it were being told they're not of large economic means. So we're looking at a young couple, impoverished, I hate to say, but they're living at their means, right? But they're showing up to this big, huge, beautiful city, going to the temple, embodying everything that God has told them to do. And then we meet two characters. And I love these two characters. So the first one is introduced. He is a man in Jerusalem. So in terms of his genealogy, we assume he lived in Jerusalem, but he's in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit rests on him, which is our clue that he is more of a prophetic voice in his community. So this man named Simeon, who has been waiting, actively waiting in the habit of Habakkuk, waiting for the restoration of God's people. And the Spirit tells him, go to the temple because it's happening now. And so Simeon shows up at the temple to see this young couple that is coming in. And we see him kind of in verse 29, he's noticing, it's like not a year in review, but a life in review and going, this thing I've been expectantly waiting has come, like I can be released now. I have seen there's nothing more majestic than the restoration of God's people. And look in verse 30, he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. He's quoting Isaiah. Not necessarily Isaiah 51, although there's a reflection of Isaiah 51, but we could say it could be Isaiah 42, 49, 52, 60. There's lots of times Isaiah lists these words. So Simeon in like embodying and living in this expectation has soaked in the promises of God. And when he sees the promise coming true, he can quote the words saying, this is what God is doing. The next person we meet is Anna. 
Anna doesn't have a speaking role, which makes her really easy to dismiss because we, we like to focus on people who are quoting scripture and what does that mean? And look at that, that seems really exciting. But we're meant to see Anna. So even though she doesn't have a speaking role, she speaks in the passage, just the words aren't recorded. So we have to look, she's given quite a long description and each detail is important. So Anna is a prophet. So we just met a prophet in Simeon. Now we're meeting a prophet in Anna. And although female prophets maybe aren't as commonly recorded as male prophets, there's a long history of female prophets in Hebrew scriptures. But even Luke, as the author of this text, is calling Anna a prophet. And in the book of Acts, also written by Luke, traditionally written by Luke, he's going to name Philip and his four daughters who are also prophets. So Anna is fitting into a long line of this prophetic female voice. She is a daughter, so she we get a lineage for. She's the daughter of Phanuel, but she's also of the tribe of Asher. And there's several commentaries that kind of toss this as, oh, that's a weird little detail that Luke throws in, but it is absolutely essential. The tribe of Asher was a northern tribe in Israel. They were actually right on the Mediterranean coast. So modern day Haifa, if you know modern geography, just on the northern side of Mount Carmel as you sweep up to the modern day uh, uh, border of Lebanon. So right on the Mediterranean Sea is the place where Asher was located. Asher was among some of the first of the tribes that were taken into exile by the Assyrians. So they were taken away into exile before the northern kingdom of Israel's capital city in the hills of Samaria were taken away. So some of the first to be just kind of wiped off. But here we have record of someone from Asher. In other words, this is kind of one of these clues. We should maybe rework our modern, um, we tend to say, oh, the lost tribes of Israel. There weren't ever really lost tribes. There were just the first into exile and the last into exile with a very heavy focus on the Southern tribe of Judah. But what we see in Anna being from the tribe of Asher is there's been a messianic hope for the restoration of all of God's people, not the southern tribe of Judah, but all the whole, the northern and southern kingdom of the Israelites, the whole entirety of God's people. And so we see in Anna being from Asher that even all of the exiles, no matter which time they went into exile, there is a refocus on Jerusalem and on God's presence and on the restoration God's bringing for all of his people. Like none are left out. So this mention of Asher is really important. She too, like Simeon, is of great age. Um, and this is really interesting. So she lived with a husband. She was married only seven years. 
after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84, which is actually a little bit, um, this is a little jumbled in the original Greek. And so it really could be that she was married for seven years and then lived until she was 84 and died. Or it could be she was married for seven years and then lived as a widow for 84. No matter which option you choose, she is an older female who has then dedicated herself to the temple and is living day and night fasting and praying. I mean, again, the anticipation, the determination to sit and wait and look for the restoration of his people. But then Anna, at the end, when she sees this couple, although we don't hear her voice recorded in Luke, she turns and began to praise God and speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. It's a powerful voice put into the mouth of Anna. So the words are not recorded, but she proclaims very loudly what she sees. Okay, so what happens when we read these two characters together, Simeon and Anna? So first, we see a great representation of people with the longevity of waiting, people who embody the example of anticipating and faithfully looking forward to the restoration that God promised. And they both have an active response when they see that promise come true. Simeon, we see this outward movement. We see this focal point in Jerusalem, but he's going, ah, but this truth is going out to the nations. In Anna, we see people even in the exile coming into Jerusalem to focus at what is happening, this transformation in Jerusalem. So we have an outward and we have an inward movement. In Simeon, we have spoken words, but to a very private audience in Jesus's parents. With Anna, we don't have spoken words, but it is a public declaration of all that God has done. And it's interesting because this gospel message that they're proclaiming is quite inclusive, and it's put into the mouth of a male and female. How much more inclusive, right? To, to say something is truly inclusive and to give it two different mouths to proclaim is something really beautiful. And as I was looking at this passage this week, I just kept thinking, do I know a Simeon? Do I know an Anna? Like I do, actually. There are several people who are much older than I in my life who have been these voices of long, persistent waiting and anticipating. And the people who, because of their waiting and their faithfulness, when God shows up, they've gone, ah, that's him right there. Oh, that's him. I'm always like, whoa, like their example. And I don't know, maybe you feel like you are retired in your 70s, maybe 80s. You then are Simeon and Anna. And our church should go, thank you. We need you. We need that voice. So, if we look at all of Luke in review so far, chapter two, we see a couple things in terms of the people who notice and recognize this important child. 
We see John as an infant in Elizabeth's womb, the first to recognize the miracle of who Jesus is in Mary's womb. Elizabeth, because of John leaping about in her womb, Elizabeth recognizes Jesus. Then, of course, we have shepherds, Mary and Joseph, of course. We have angels who rip, across, rip apart the sky and come tumbling out in their hurry to, like, tell everyone how important this child is. And now we have two prophets who have been waiting their entire life, looking and pointing at the importance of this, this child. And we, the audience, at this point in the book of Luke, are asked to lean in. Lean in and look at who else is going to start recognizing who this child is. What is this child going to grow into? Who is going to have eyes to see? And who is going to have the courage to be completely transformed by this child? And we as a community get to spend the next few months looking at that. We persevere with Luke. We persevere with these witnesses, drawing witness to the life and ministry of Jesus in his human ministry as he pushes towards the death and resurrection. And we as a community in all of our ages, right? Because Luke is saying from infants to people who are older, to people who are younger, to people who are middle-aged, to those with simple careers like shepherds, to those with prophetic careers, all of these variety of characters witness the grandness of who Jesus is. And we as a community get to do that, not only in the stories that we tell over the next couple of months, but in the standing and walking forward, all of us as witnesses to what Jesus has done. And the question as we eat from the table is do we have the courage to be completely transformed by who in this story is just a small infant child? Let's pray together. Holy Father, the one who has a very large storyline, one who goes way beyond one year in review or one life in review, but is busy interacting with generations and generations of humanity, with your own people in the Israelites and the Jews, but with this justice, this teaching, this light that has gone out to the Gentiles to then include all of us in this story. To you, we look at and we say, thank you for your perseverance. Give us the courage to persevere as well. And may we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the courage to be transformed by your son. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.